Welcome back to season five of That's What She Did podcast. We're dedicated to amplifying the voices of the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you don't already know. We highlight everyday women who are impacting today's social issues while also centering the voices of women of color. In short, we curate the stories of brilliant women. This season, we're bringing you Women Who Disrupt. Each episode, you're going to hear from an impactful and inspiring woman who push your thinking, challenge your assumptions, and most importantly, inspire you to find a way to create impact in your corner of the world. I'm Tangia Renee, creator and host of That's What She Did. Thank you for joining me and your fellow inspiration junkies as we learn from and connect with today's brilliant women. Hey friends, you're listening to season five, episode 13 of That's What She Did podcast. I'm your host, Tangi Renee. You may have noticed that this week's episode is out late today. We normally like to make every episode available at midnight Eastern time on Fridays, but today we're releasing later in the day because at the last minute, I decided to pull back the episode and re-record the intro the intro you're listening to now. And honestly, I felt it was important and I needed some time to gather my thoughts. Why? Well, because a lot has happened in the last 48 hours and I can't in good conscience ignore it. I'm talking about the murders of George George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hands of police officers and the recent murders of Ahmaud Aubrey by a retired police officer and his son for simply jogging down the street. This week's episode was already scheduled for release when the events of the past week unfolded. But to release this podcast as if what happened this week didn't happen felt both tone deaf and wrong, especially considering that on the podcast you're about to hear today, we're talking specifically about disrupting the criminal justice system in the U.S., This show is about amplifying the voices of brilliant women, most of whom are women of color. So talking about these murders may feel off topic or even out of context. I assure you, it's not. But either way, I don't care because this is important and I'm not about to pretend that it isn't happening or doesn't deserve our attention and action. On this podcast, discussing issues around race comes up often because on this show, we talk to women who are confronted with racism, both in their everyday lives and often in the work that they do. So naturally, it's going to come up. If there's anything we should learn from our guests on this show, it's that racism didn't go away, that it's not going away, and it impacts real people every single day to the point that people are being killed. Specifically, Black people are being killed, and lives are at risk every single day. I know from looking at the analytics of this show that our audience is diverse. It's mostly women, but it's women across many different races, and not only from North America, but also from countries across Europe and Latin America. And while our listening audience may be diverse, and while we have many things in common, including, I assume, many of our values around equity, it doesn't mean that we are all touched by racism in the same way or at all. For me, and by extension this show, it's not enough to simply acknowledge racism exists. We have to do something. I feel we have a responsibility to address systems of oppression head on with this podcast. That said, I also get that we are not all in the same place in learning about our own unconscious bias, racism in general, or acknowledging anti-Blackness and eventually taking action. I hope that these recent murders and what you learn from today's show encourages you to learn more about anti-oppression work and how you can tie yourself into it. Mostly, I hope that you will take some kind of action that takes a stand against racism and systems of oppression broadly.
Also, I sincerely hope that you will not stand on the sidelines because this is not how change happens. Now, speaking specifically to my white listeners, the system of racism and the problems that we face as a result of it will not change without your help. We need you learning about and interrogating your own unconscious biases if you haven't already started that work. And we need you finding a way to use your position in society to dismantle these systems of oppression. However, you're able to do that. I also need to speak directly to my non-Black people of color that listen to this show. Hear me, please. Just because you are a person of color does not mean that you are subject to the same dangers as Black people in America. We have to start getting real about the fact that anti-Blackness exists and is pervasive across communities of color. This is important because the travesty of people getting killed by police disproportionately impacts Black people. Not people of color, but Black people specifically. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Honey, we are past that point. The most important thing you can do is not be neutral. You have to take a stand against anti-Blackness in your community and in your family. It's time to stand with your Black brothers and sisters. Black people in the U.S. have bore the brunt of racism, especially racially motivated violence in all of its forms. And all people of color have benefited from Black people being at the forefront of social justice work. We owe it to ourselves, to our communities, and in fact to the Black community to stand up and do something. You don't have to go out and protest, but do something. I encourage you to take action on the current efforts to support activists who are putting themselves at risk every day to dismantle these systems of oppression. You can start at home. Become an accomplice to your Black colleagues, friends, and family, and use your privileges and resources to intervene where you can. Shut down racist rhetoric when you are a witness to it at work, at home, with your friends, and with your family. Examine and interrogate your own unconscious bias. And get that if this is scary and hard for you, it's downright terrifying and in fact dangerous for Black people. Start to teach your family about being anti-racist specifically. Don't try to be colorblind. That's not really a thing, but be anti-racist instead. If you haven't yet, I encourage you to familiarize yourself with the work of women who are actively, every day, working to dismantle systems of of oppression. Women like Brittany Pacchietti Cunningham, Layla Saad, Robin D'Angelo, Alicia Garza. I will link to their social media profiles in the show notes for you to help you get started. But don't stop there. Again, be an accomplice to anti-racism and anti-oppression work. Don't be an observer. Don't stand on the sidelines. Do something, anything that's within your power to take action. I'm also going to be linking into the show notes a few places anyone can go to take some small action right now to support what's happening in the world, to support change and start to undo this. It's going to take all of us. So please find a way to get involved. Now, go ahead and introduce you to this week's guest. I have Nicole Porter, the Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project. Nicole was named a new civil rights leader by Essence Magazine for her work in eliminating mass incarceration. Her work has been cited in several major media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio. She works again for the Sentencing Project. The Sentencing Project works for a fair and effective U.S. criminal justice system by promoting reforms in sentencing policy, addressing unjust racial disparities and practices, and advocating for alternatives to incarceration. In short, the Sentencing Project is a leader in changing the way Americans think about crime and punishment. This is an important episode to listen to, so 
please give it a listen and give it a share. Thank you again for continuing to show up for us week after week and consuming our content and sharing it. This week has been rough. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take care of yourself, take care of your community and figure out what you can do wherever you are to support anti-racism, racism, anti-oppression work. Thank you. Right, welcome back everyone to another episode of That's What She Did. This is the Women Who Disrupt season. I hope you are loving it as much as I am. In fact, I know you are because I can see how many downloads we're getting each week. So thank you for continuing to come back, supporting the show, sharing this show, and most importantly, giving us your time and attention. I'm super happy to be able to introduce you to Nicole Porter, who is the Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project. And we're going to have a really interesting discussion, I think, about um, incarceration in America and why we need to be talking about this issue. So welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking with you and happy to be here. Definitely my pleasure. So Nicole, why don't you start us out by just giving us the background on how you came to be where you are now. What brought you to the Sentencing Project? Why are you doing this work? Well, so I've been at the Sentencing Project for a while now, over 10 years, and I was politicized around incarceration because my twin brother was incarcerated in the early 2000s. He had been in and out of juvenile hall um, when he was a kid and as a young adult. Also got locked up and spent some time in jail and then was sentenced to very long felony probation sentence down in Texas. So that's what helped contribute to my awareness of mass incarceration and because of my brother's incarceration and then other young men who I'd grown up with who also experienced incarceration during our young adult years. So while at the sentencing project, I've focused on state advocacy. I am the director of advocacy, uh, but manage and manage the state advocacy portfolio here. And we do a range of issues. We define sentencing broadly from admissions to prison and length of stay, as well as collateral consequences, including uh, voting rights bans and other public benefits bans or, or civic exclusions for people with criminal justice histories. So, and as uh, the director of advocacy, I work with uh, grassroots advocates and, and organizations in the states who are prioritizing a range of criminal justice reform um, issues. So then that's done in a variety of ways. The Sentencing Project defines itself as a bridge organization between the academy and the activists. So we work to make research accessible to a mass audience, including people who you know may not have a lot of experience with research. And then that work also informs issue campaigns and efforts to try to change the law and change structures that have contributed to and continue to reinforce mass incarceration in the United States and around the country. Okay. So mass incarceration is a big umbrella of, of things. <laughs> and all you and to sort of understand how many different things that encompasses, all you have to do is go to the sentencing project website. And they tell you <laughs> there's so many different issues. So why, but why is this, you think, so important, especially in today's context? Yeah, I mean, mass incarceration does, I think the term globally does sort of encompass a lot of different issues, but it is specific in the United States context. So our incarceration rate has grown substantially since the early 70s, given this era of mass incarceration that we're currently existing within. And there are reasons for that. So since the early 80s, residents around the country have a higher chance of coming in contact with the police. Given that there's a higher chance of coming in contact with the police, there's a higher chance of going to prison. Of being, I'm sorry, of being charged with a crime. And once charged with a crime, there's a higher chance of going to prison and once people go to prison, there's a higher chance of being in prison for longer. 
So there's two reasons why the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We send people to prison for things that they just don't get sent to prison for in other uh, parts of the world. And when we send people to prison, they serve on average longer periods of time in prison than they would in other parts of the world. And women have really suffered the brunt of this during the early 80s, during the era that we call the war on drugs. You know, the growth of women's incarceration exceeded the pace of men's incarceration, even though the overall rate of incarceration has been substantial. And, you know, women in general go to prison for two particular reasons, for drug offenses and for property offenses. And their admissions to prison has increased over time and their length of stay in prison has increased over time. In addition to the number of women who are in prison or jail on any given day, there's also a substantial number. In fact, the overwhelming substantial number of women are actually on probation. So they're living in the community, but they've been subjected to state surveillance, you know, required to submit to mandatory drug testing in many states. Uh, required to check in with the probation officer and meet with the probation officer in many states that may disrupt their daily lives and may complicate their ability to keep employment, to maintain employment, because they have to schedule around regular meetings with the probation officer. It may also complicate their ability to you know, care for children or elder relatives because they're always managing around these appointments and other conditions to comply with so, supervision. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. Um, so I read that the U.S. is the world leader in incarceration, like by a lot, like a lot, a lot. And when you look at just the statistic, it's hard not to ask, well, why is that? I mean, does that mean that the U.S. is just like inherently filled with more criminals, like more dangerous people than other other countries? What does that mean? I think the non um, sort of curious person or the tough on crime sort of resident may assume that, but it's not that's not true. Uh, crime increased in other parts of the world at the same time that crime increased in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. So violent crime did increase in the United States. And in some ways, mass incarceration is a direct response to that. But violent crime also increased in Sweden, Germany and Finland and other Western countries um, during the same time period. And those countries responded to changes in violent crime with a uh, expansion of the safety net as opposed to a retraction of it. And rather than um, expand prison cells and, and increase the number of prison beds, they expanded access to early childhood education and work to divert people and reduce future contact with law enforcement as opposed to reinforce and expand opportunities that people would come in contact with law enforcement. There's a lot of underlying reasons why the U.S. response was a high incarceration one compared to other uh, Western countries. We have a, you know, our country is characterized by by punitiveness here. And there's also an issue of race that underlies how these responses get generated and, you know, what led to the building up of a prison system rather than the building up of other social infrastructure that reduced contact with law enforcement. So no, the United States residents are not more violent or more criminal prone than they, than other residents of other parts of the world are. It's just our responses to crime in the 70s and 80s was one that focused on incarceration as opposed to prevention and reductions of contact with the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, so these numbers always are, are crazy to me because if I, I looked on your website and I saw that you had a graph on there about the international incarceration rates and it's like Mm -hmm. per 100,000 people or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the okay. that's a that's a, a a good way to assess 
the impact of incarceration because general populations vary so widely from country to country. And so in order to assess the magnitude, like how does the United States compare to United Kingdom or mm-hmm. to Germany or to Australia or to India or to China, looking at rate. So the, the number of people incarcerated per 100,000 is a good way uh, to do that. Hey, friends. This episode is brought to you by Trade and Travel, a game-changing online course created by our episode one guest, Terry Egioma, founder of Invest with Terry. Terry is on a mission to teach at least a thousand people how to make a thousand dollars per day. Imagine what you could do with an extra thousand dollars in a month, let alone making that much in a single day. That's why I'm excited that Terry has made her game-changing program, Trade and Travel, widely available. I'm going to take the course and you can take it too. All you have to do is use the link in the show notes to get access to the course now. Let's learn how to make $1,000 in a day together. I mean, who couldn't use an extra $1,000? I know I can. I mean, who am I? Mike Bloomberg? Of course I could use an extra $1,000. People who have taken the course are actually able to quit their jobs so they can travel the world with all the money they've made learning how to master the stock market. And I'm not ashamed to say that I want that life. You guys, let's trade and travel together. Just click on the link in the show notes and get started now. Use link bit.ly forward slash she did invest to learn how to get started with trade and travel. Yeah, so I'm I I just in fact while you were were just talking through that I just pulled up the graph because I wanted to see it again and mm-hmm. it's this interesting bar graph and and I think I've heard people argue well of course the US would have more because we're a bigger country than these other countries so there's just more people. And okay, fine, but if you're looking at it per 100,000 people, I mean the only other country in size that sort of kind of comes close, but still doesn't really touch our incarceration rate is Russia. Russia and China, who have, you know, substantially higher general populations, but nowhere near the rate of incarceration that we do. And Russia also has a high rate of violence Mm -hmm. in that country. Now, it is fair to, you know, to question, well, how is Russia responding to crime? What do its most marginalized citizens experience? What do any racial minorities or ethnic minorities in Russia experience? Because clearly there is social and structural marginalization and isolation happening in those countries. But I think it's important for the United States to be compared to Russia and China and India and other countries. Because the United States likes to you know, center itself. Um, as a model of democracy and as a model of freedom. And yet clearly that's not true, given that incarceration is an indication that not everyone here is free, literally, physically, Mm -hmm. because people's liberty are taken away because they're disappeared behind prison walls. And then the response to certain crimes, even low-level nonviolent crimes, the fact that there are a number of people sentenced to life without parole and any meaningful chance of release in this country for low-level offenses, or even for serious ones, is an indication of how punitive this country is and how people should be, you know, should critique how fair the United States is given the high rate of incarceration and that we can and do lock away so many people in not only people incarcerated on any given day in prison or in jail, but the fact that there are lifetime collateral consequences that seek to marginalize people for the rest of their life and, you know, exclude them and isolate them from full civic participation or civil participation because of a felony conviction. Do you happen to know um, how much we spend in this country on incarceration compared to other countries? Like say compared compared to to Russia. Yeah. Uh, No, I don't have that comparison off the top of my, um, you know, I don't know that specifically, but I do know that the United States spends $80 billion on corrections, you know, and that's combined at the federal and amongst our state jurisdictions. So that's a substantial amount of resources that are dedicated to incarceration as opposed to other aspects of social 
of social infrastructure. And that money could be invested on quality housing, quality and affordable housing. That money could be invested in early childhood education. That money could be used to support public health care um, for, you know, you know, anyone who doesn't have health access to health care. So that money could be used in a variety of ways rather than disappearing people away for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, behind prison and jail walls. So again, I'm, like this, this graph on your website fascinates me because I, I'm noticing that Canada, which is similar in size, <laughs> and culture, you could argue, culture, as yeah. well to the United States, has mm-hmm. a fraction of the incarceration rate that mm-hmm. we do in this country. What do you think countries like Canada are doing differently? I think they have other infrastructure that people, um, to direct people to, who come in contact with law enforcement. So, uh the fact that they have a public health care system may connect people to services who have substance abuse uh, disorders and may come in contact with the police or with law enforcement because of those substance abuse uh, disorders. People with mental health challenges whose underlying crime may be a symptom or reflection of their mental health challenge may benefit or may be directed into other levels of care that don't necessarily require incarceration or imprisonment. And lastly, you know, Canadian lawmakers made choices around not responding to increases in crime with just lengthening prison terms and sending more people to prison. You know, as the United States continues to respond to crime, even in this era where there's more and more people talking about mass incarceration and criminal justice policy, there will continue to be choices that lawmakers make around what to do when crime dominates the national news or the local news. Because unfortunately, we live with crime. It's a, it's, a, it's a factor of our communities. It's something that we can work to prevent and we can you know, work to put new supports in place, social supports in place to prevent future contact with law enforcement for people most at risk of offending. And yet, even if we do all the things, there's a high possibility that a high profile offense may happen where, unfortunately, hopefully not, you know, a young child may be harmed or a series of children may be harmed. And so what to do in response to that will be specific to that case. But the one of the issues in the United States has been governing by antidote that in response to high profile offenses that lead to sort of cookie cutter approaches that have driven up admissions and driven up links to stay, as opposed to understanding that the circumstances of a particular case, while troubling, shouldn't necessarily characterize the response to everyone who might come in contact with the criminal justice system, that each response deserves an individualized one because the circumstances of those offenses are more likely than not situational, exacerbated by, in the conflict, in Crimes that are the result of conflict are oftentimes exacerbated by drugs or alcohol. And so the fact that we have mandatory minimums in this country that don't allow for that individualized sentencing in any circumstances to be considered by judges or practitioners leads to very long prison terms in this country that doesn't take into consideration any sort of factors that you know, resulted in that offense. And so Canada doesn't have the same rate of incarceration that we do in the United States because they don't have these mandatory sentencing laws that take away discretion and take away individual responses to crimes that may happen. There are no doubt there are horrendous crimes that you know dominate U.S. history and that have resulted in some of the policies that lawmakers have responded with. But those horrible offenses shouldn't characterize our entire criminal justice system. 
and take away the ability of judges to create individual responses to you know any crimes that uh, may be the focus of public safety conversations or ways to help keep people safe. So I think some people will look at the high incarceration rate in this country and say, well, this, the system is working as exactly as it should be. The high numbers are showing us that essentially the the justice system, although I wouldn't call it that personally, is doing its job. It's taking these uh, people off the streets that are among the rest of us who are inherent troublemakers and criminals. And how do you know, from your perspective, that the the system isn't actually working? Yeah. Well, we know it's not working because of the high rate of recidivism that's reflective in the system. So if the system were working, then the fact that so many people are returned to prison every year wouldn't happen because people's incarceration would would be such an effective intervention that there would be no need to return those people to prison. We know it's not working because of the collateral impact that happens on communities when people are disappeared away. Because of the high rates of arrest and high rates of admissions from high incarceration neighborhoods, the million dollar blocks of Brooklyn and Cleveland were high numbers of residents are sent each year into the state prison system in New York and Ohio and that maps on to other state prison systems around the country that the extraction of those residents wouldn't, you know, lead to um, the disappearing of resources from those communities and keeping crime high in those neighborhoods, even though law enforcement is arresting drug dealers and, and property offenders and sending them to prison each year. So we know that given the high rate of incarceration, some limited, inca- some limited incapacitation has had a positive impact on public safety and has contributed in part to a reduction in crime. But that is a very small percentage of the overall decline in crime since the early 90s. And the other factors that contributed to those crimes, to those declines in crime include improvements in wage growth and living wage employment and include um, access to educational opportunities and um, expansion of early childhood education in certain jurisdictions around the country. So in addition to incapacitation through imprisonment, there are a range of other responses that policymakers have made and could expand on to counter the growth of incarceration and the high rate of incarceration, given the criticism that the United States suffers from its own residents on how problematic it is that we have such a high rate of imprisonment and how that high rate of imprisonment is used not just within the United States, but also internationally to call into question claims of democracy and fairness that the United States you know, purports to, to support, but clearly is not true because it's reflective in our high rate of incarceration and the racial disproportionality that's so pervasive in the United States criminal justice system. So if you're saying that the crime rate has gone down since the 90s and there is a lot of criticism from citizens within the country that the system isn't working as it should be working, then why does the incarceration rate not take a hit? Why doesn't it go down? Why does it stay the same? Who benefits from that system? uh Well, there's a range of people who benefit from it. It has gone down modestly since over the last few years, since the incarceration rate peaked federally in 2011, and it peaked within states starting in the late 90s. Uh, States that have had the most substantial decline in their incarceration rate include states like New York, New Jersey, Alaska, 
California, and they've experienced incarceration declines for a range of reasons. They've passed, they've repealed some mandatory minimum laws. They've expanded diversion to prison for people who would be prison bound. Most of those people are convicted of drug offenses or property offenses. Most of those reforms advantage women who are justice involved and who are diverted into community-based alternatives rather than sent away uh, to prison. Um, you know, out of their home communities. So, but it hasn't gone down enough. The response to mass incarceration is nowhere near as as muscular as the growth of the incarceration rate starting in the 1970s to now. And in fact, we estimate that given the modest pace of decline, if we continue at the same level of decline, it would take the United States 75 years to return to the incarceration rate of the early 1980s, which were still higher than the incarceration rates of Norway and what in other countries in Western Europe. So the reform that has been going on, the organizing that's been happening around the country to call questions to power around mass incarceration and the policies that disappear people have helped to build out conversations and broaden the discussion, but the response is nowhere near as substantial as the policies that got adopted that increased admissions to prison and length of confinement for people touched by the criminal justice system. Why do you think this issue is not a priority in this country? I think that the system is effective at doing what it does, which is isolate communities that are already isolated and deepen marginalization in communities that are already marginalized. So by the time someone is arrested, and we're not talking about people who are necessarily innocent, but by the time someone has, an, has committed an offense that can lead to their incarceration, there's a range of other social failures that that person may have experienced. Many of the people who are touched by incarceration have not graduated high school. And why they haven't graduated high school may be a range of reasons. I'm not an expert in education policy, but perhaps they, but perhaps many of the folks who incarcerated, who didn't graduate high school, have, have an undiagnosed learning disability. Perhaps many of the folks who are incarcerated, and we know this to be true, were unemployed at the time of their offending. So there are crimes of poverty that they, uh, you know, that they engaged with to bring and meet their material needs. So there's a range of other structural issues that communities around the country experience that could be dealt with without having to deal with incarceration. There could be, you know, solutions focused on structural inequality, on poverty, on improving educational outcomes from the folks most challenged in and who face substantial barriers to completing their education. And if this, and if this country invested in that infrastructure, invested in those solutions, that should lead to reducing contact with law enforcement and hopefully contribute to driving down prison populations. And going forward, what should happen is that lawmakers should understand that we already have high rates of incarceration. We already have tools to hold people accountable if they break laws and break social contracts through criminal offending. That that reality should bring up for lawmakers ways to improve communities without focusing on incarceration. And I would hope that that could sort of drive solutions as opposed to continuing to focus on imprisoning people as a response to crime or any other problem that gets surfaced, whether or not it's human trafficking or new experience, you know, new drugs that that are dominating the conversation because there's some new drug that people are so, uh, you know, attracted to or any other range of social problems that uh, community members and lawmakers are seeking to respond to and that 
typically have been responded to with incarceration and law enforcement as opposed to other aspects of social infrastructure or social Mm -hmm. interventions. It seems very clear to me that there's a lot of problems within the the current system that we have. I hesitate to call it the justice system. Mm -hmm. Um, What most, from your view, needs to be disrupted? I think the entire response to social problems with law enforcement needs to be disrupted. Understanding and holding that we already have focused on disappearing people away as a as a response to any sort of social policy problems. And given that reality, that looking at other responses to problems would be a disruption in and of itself, just thinking not responding with a new crime, with a new uh, effort towards criminalization or a new way to empower law enforcement would in and of itself be a disrupting approach to policy problems. And so that could be disrupted. I think what needs to be disrupted is, you know, understanding the disadvantages that persons of color experience when they come in contact with the law enforcement. So disrupting those interactions, taking entire offenses off the table that lead to imprisonment should be disrupted. I think there's some real examples of that and a lot of that advantage is women. So there's this new trend around reclassifying low level felonies to misdemeanors, which would remove prison as a response to certain crimes. Now maybe people would have to serve a period of time in jail locally, or it might uh, put more people on probation and there could be consequences to that. But at the very least, they wouldn't be sent to prison and required to serve more than a year in custody. And many of those reclassifications of low-level felonies to misdemeanor include low-level property offenses like, you know, writing bad checks or or low-level drug offenses. And in states like California and Oklahoma, when those changes happen, women, incarcerated women, received the most benefit from those changes. And because those changes were retroactive, hundreds of women were released from prison and were returned home to their families Mm -hmm. sooner than they expected. So disrupting the idea that prison is the only response to any offending would be a disruption and much of the recent changes around that advantage you know justice involved women in many ways Mm -hmm. I mean there's so many things right I mean you just listed I don't know 10 things that need to be disruptive and that's probably not a comprehensive list there's probably a hundred more things so but that is and that is the issue with the criminal justice system is that it isn't just one issue that has led to the growth of incarceration. And if anyone, you know, takes a look at a state's criminal code, it's in, or the federal criminal code, it's in, they're incredibly complex. Many of the statutes overlap. And those are the criminal statutes that prosecutors and judges start with to charge defendants with and could subject someone to a prison or jail or community supervision sanction. Not to mention the other practices and policies that can follow someone for the rest of their life, not to mention the various stakeholders that comprise the criminal justice system, not at just not just within states, but also at the federal level. Think about all the judges who are employed, all the police who are employed, all the prosecutors who are employed, plus the plus the court-appointed attorneys or the public defenders representing defendants, plus the probation and parole officers, plus all of the administrative staff, plus the correctional officers who staff the prisons and the jails. There are tens of thousands of individuals who comprise the system that's funded at $80 billion a year. And yes, there are a lot of things that you know people could start with if they want to try to carve out their piece of it to organize against it or to try to challenge mass incarceration. There is no one solution to this. It's a mix of responses that everyone has to get involved with in order to to address this thing and hopefully 
help us at the Sentencing Project along with our allies successfully reduce the number of people who are in prison and in jail in any given year. Mm-hmm. So I know in in this work, you all at the Sentencing Project have chosen women, specifically women in, in incarceration, as one of the key levers to try to impact to change the system. So why women specifically when, especially when we know if you just look at the hard numbers, there's more men incarcerated than women are incarcerated. So why have you chosen this population to try to impact the most? No, I mean, it is true. Substantially, you know, even though the growth of women's incarceration has outpaced that of men, the real numbers of people who are incarcerated are dominated by men. Um, I think why focusing on women is there's a couple of reasons to do that. One being that given low rates of violence amongst incarcerated women in terms of their crime of conviction, or even once they experience while incarcerated, it sorts of, surfaces the question, well, what are these folks in prison for, right? I mean, if they're not, if the overwhelming majority of women who are incarcerated are in prison for nonviolent offenses, then what is the reason to disappear someone away who poses no physical threat to public safety? So those are underlying questions that sort of drive questions around mass incarceration in the United States overall. And looking at women's incarceration in particular can help, you know, shed a light on, well, how do these policies contribute to mass incarceration, particularly when you're looking at this one demographic that is overwhelmingly convicted and sentenced for nonviolent offenses. There's also this trend of women who are incarcerated for life sentences of many of whom are convicted for violence, but the circumstances of their crimes of conviction point to broader structural issues and structural failings that these women experienced long before their crime occurred and long before they were incarcerated. Many of the women who are incarcerated for life sentences are convicted of homicide for their uh, domestic abuser. And so the circumstances of their crime, which, you know, and we're not working to excuse away any responses to abuse with violence. And yet many of those women, you know, report reaching out to law enforcement prior to the events that led to the crime that resulted in their incarceration. Many of those women report defending themselves, um, self-defending themselves during a violent interaction with their domestic partner and it resulting in death uh, leading to their incarceration. And so all of the, all of the structural failings that were experienced by these life sentence women are things for us to interrogate as a community and as a broader society to figure out, well, what are the, what, what are the barriers that, you know, these women bumped up against even prior to the crime that led to their incarceration and what needs to happen in order to prevent domestic abuse, in order to give women who experience abuse solutions that, you know, where they don't have to wait for that one, that last violent incident that can lead to anyone's murder, whether even if it is their domestic abuser's murder, and then lead to their life sentence. Um, And so looking at women in particular sort of raises questions that anyone curious and critical of the high rate of incarceration in the United States um, can explore and hopefully can lead to solutions, prevention-based solutions that can reduce incarceration in the future. So why should anyone care, really? And, and like, Unless it's your mom or your sister or your brother, why should anybody care about any of this? Well, I guess I do care because it was my brother and I care because I know people who are personally touched by this. 
And because we do have such a high rate of incarceration, I think the growing experience of people whose family members are directly impacted by incarceration is substantial, even though people may not publicly disclose it. But I think many people know someone personally who has been incarcerated or been touched by the system in some way. And for people who don't, they should care because this is about public safety. Creating other solutions outside of the criminal justice system to prevent crime keeps us safe and, you know, would probably personally improve the public safety of everyone, including people who may not know someone personally who's been imprisoned uh, because of a criminal sentence. And if they, and if their personal safety isn't a driving force and why they should care, then other issues around fiscal, you know, improving fiscal um, responsibility would hopefully inspire someone to care around, you know, mm-hmm. reducing the rate of incarceration and also the expenses spent every year on imprisonment and incarceration. What would you say is the collateral damage of, of this entire system? There are many, you know, people, there can be people who have a criminal conviction who didn't spend a lot of time in prison or jail, but whose criminal conviction can follow them for the rest of their life. You know, we, there's a federal lifetime ban on public benefits that highly disadvantages women with felony drug convictions. We estimated that about 180,000 women were denied public welfare benefits for life because of a felony drug conviction. Now, the good news is, is that many states have opted out of this federal lifetime ban. But the bad news is, is that we don't even know how many, you know, tens of thousands of women may have been denied an ability to provide for themselves and their children uh, because of this policy. And so the, the issue with that is, is that the criminal justice system has expanded itself, has grown beyond arrest and incarceration to include other areas of civic life, denying eligibility to people seeking cash assistance, people who are poor, who would otherwise be eligible but are denied access to those benefits because of their felony drug conviction. In many states, and we numbered uh, in 2016 that over 6 million people are denied the right to vote because of a lifetime, you know, because of a felony uh, drug, not drug, because of a felony conviction. So, you know, over 6 million people were denied the right to vote in uh, 2016 because of that. That number is no doubt lower today because there have been some significant reforms over the last several years, but still it's way too high. There are a lot of exclusions to employment and to housing because of felony uh, experiences and felony contact with the law. So there are substantial collateral impacts because of the criminal justice system. And the problem with the policies in the United States is that it really expands beyond arrest in the courtroom and you in bubbles up and is present in a range of ways around this country. And so when people want to talk about criminal justice reform or when they want to challenge mass incarceration, imprisonment is one aspect of that, but there's a bunch of other aspects to it too that include collateral consequences that can follow some people for life, no matter what they do to move beyond or to address their debt to society because of the crime that led to their incarceration. So what do you say to somebody who says, well, you shouldn't have committed that crime. You shouldn't have sold those drugs. You shouldn't have robbed that store. So you're getting exactly what you deserve. And I, sh- I don't need to worry about this because I'm not out here committing crimes. So well, <laughs> what I say to all of those people is, is that we all are better and are more than the worst thing we've ever done. And for many of us, the worst thing we've ever done didn't lead to our arrest or didn't lead to our incarceration. But for the 2.2 million people who are incarcerated today because of the worst thing they ever did led to contact with the law enforcement 
or the more than 19 million people residing in this country, some in custody, others in the community who are more than the worst thing that they ever did, that people are working to pay their debt back to their society. They're working to rehabilitate themselves. Many people have aged out of crime and no longer pose a threat to public safety, even though they may have committed something very horrible that led to their imprisonment. And yet, they're more than that, as we all are. And even people who were never arrested for anything may have experienced one thing or may have, you know, horrible incident in their life that they regret, but they don't want to be defined by. And the same, those same experiences are true of people who may have been in prison. It doesn't excuse away any crime or criminal offending that may have led to someone's incarceration, but it should help address what people what the responses could be and should be to everyone who might have done something horrible, whether or not they were incarcerated or not behind it. Mm-hmm. So this is, you're playing the long game here, right? I mean, this is not, we're, we're talking a massive system of, of people and things that have to happen in order to create real change. And, and I do want to sort of caveat that for our audience that, we didn't specifically talk about race today. I think for, for this audience, it's sort of a given that we all know, <laughs> you know, we all know the role that it plays here. Uh-huh. Um, so we maybe don't need to go into that in depth, but this work is really hard. So if there's, what keeps you going in this? Well, I mean, what keeps me going is knowing that there are stories of resilience and, activism to try to challenge mass incarceration and try to dis- trying to disrupt the practices that lead to such high levels of incarceration in this country. You know, I am fortunate in that I get to engage with grassroots activists working around the nation who are newly politicized because they have a loved one who's incarcerated or they themselves have been incarcerated. And what keeps me going is when I get a phone call from a father in North Carolina or a wife in Virginia or a mother in Idaho, who's all of whom have loved ones who are touched by the system and are seeking help. We can't provide and don't provide legal assistance, but we can talk to people about the policies that might have contributed to their loved one's incarceration. And we can connect people to a level of activism and organizing that they may not be aware of to act on their on their concern, to act in support of their loved one. And what keeps me going is knowing that behind the 2.2 million people who are incarcerated on any given day, the millions of women who are touched by this system, that there are real people represented by those numbers and that there are active efforts of resilience that are helping to power a movement to challenge and disrupt the system Mm -hmm. that we you know, we're living within. Mm-hmm. I think to be in, in a space where you are disrupting as much as you can in your, in your work, then you also have to be a disruptor in your own life. <laughs> I don't, I don't see them as separate from each other. Yeah. How, how would you define or how would you, what do you think it means to be a disruptive woman? Well, I mean, I know, well, for me, I think, you know, what guides me is looking at where power shows up in different situations and different interactions and being guided by who the most marginalized person might be in those situations and how that power is influencing their experiences in in those situations or in those interactions. And so as someone, you know, working around incarceration and not just working to challenge it, but to also work to shift 
what the responses are to some of the most substantial harms that people are experiencing and have experienced that explain in some ways our high rates of incarceration, then I am often guided by who the most marginalized people might be in those experiences. And so what I, what guides me in working to disrupt that is what are the most, what are the strongest responses to those experiences outside of the prison system? And what would that look like? What would, how would that show up? What else needs to be supported and, and built up in order to challenge incarceration and responding to those harms or to the marginalization and isolation that the most disenfranchised people in this country experience. And that's what guides me. That's sort of like a North star in thinking through what my response could be and how I can support those conversations and those responses. Mm-hmm. In this work that you do, what, what have you most learned about being in a space where you're doing work that is intended to create impact, positive impact in the world? What do you think that's taught you about yourself? That I do look for, I do look for ways to support people who are most disenfranchised and most marginalized from the power that what has attracted me to this work isn't what the powerful are saying, isn't what people with influence are saying, but how those, how decisions amongst people with influence are impacting the people who don't have it or impacting the people who don't um, have any power. You know, colleagues in other organizations are very moved by the head, you know, the positions or the perspectives of people at the heads of organizations. Now that mass incar- challenging mass incarceration is becoming more mainstream and there are celebrity activists who are getting involved with this, there, you know, I have colleagues who are very influenced and, you know, looking to jump at the opportunity to associate themselves with celebrities and other high profile people whose names would get mentioned on the news and who would get that interview um, in a celebrity talk show. But that's not what moves me by this. What moves me, what motivates me is seeing, you know, people who are newly politicized to the issue because they themselves were directly impacted or their loved ones were. And, them contributing to an analysis on what needs to change and helping to shift power that opens up space and opens up opportunity for them for themselves and for their loved ones. So that's what moves me in this work. Um, And I think in some ways this work has contributed to, if not building power, shining a light on how power uh, is used in this country and how it can help reinforce efforts to disenfranchise entire communities. And so continuing to engage with that analysis and engage with that reality, I think can help move us forward. And that is something that I actively seek to do and am, you know, moved by doing every mm-hmm. day and the work that I do. Mm-hmm. If you could give our listeners a call to action to do something, get engaged in some way, what would you tell them? Well, I encourage them to reach out to us and connect with us online at sentencingproject.org. If they sign up on our listserv, which they can find um, you know, on our homepage at sentencingproject.org, we communicate out with direct actions, you know, anytime there's action moving at the federal level and within their state. So I'd encourage that. And, you know, we have a lot of state specific information. So one thing that your listeners can do is educate themselves about their state prison system changes in their state prison system and also how the nation has changed over the last 40 to 50 years in terms of growth and just other trends relating to uh, relating to incarceration. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Just to make things sort of as crystal clear to the audience as we can, if you could in a phrase or a sentence, a quick sentence or two sort of sum up, although I know it would be difficult, sort of sum up why they should care about this issue of, of mass incarceration in the U.S., what would it be? Yeah, I mean, they should care because there are 2.2 million people incarcerated in prisons and jails today. That's a higher rate of incarceration than countries with greater general populations of China and Russia. And people and the growth of incarceration has been substantial over the last 40 to 50 years. And that growth has been because of politics, not because the United States residents are more violent than Russians or, or Chinese residents. So people should care because it's a poor reflection on our country. And in order to change that and disrupt that, we need their participation and their engagement with the issue. And we hope that they can engage with it by joining us at sentencingproject.org. Well, Nicole, thanks again for joining me on the show. Loved having you so much. I certainly hope some people will check out the Sentencing Project and possibly get involved and learn more. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Definitely my pleasure, folks. That is our episode for this week. Thanks for listening and being a supporter of the show. Remember, the best way for you to support this show is to share this show and hit subscribe if you haven't already so you get those episodes as soon as they are dropped. And of course, if the app you are listening on allows you to leave us a review, your reviews are a big, huge help. So please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this show. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. Love, love that you show up every week and have a good one. Take care.